if you brought your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you have, turn with me to uh, the Gospel according to John, right? The book of John, chapter 8, is where I'm going to begin in the first verse of chapter 8 this morning. Well, you're finding John, chapter 8, verse 1. Let me talk to you for just a minute. Uh, This hasn't got anything to do with my sermon. It was just something I was been thinking about, been on my mind. I've been reading uh, this book. Uh, I forget exactly what the title is, but something to the effect of uh, why do men hate going to church or why do men hate church or something like that. Um, The title is a bit extreme. It's to get your attention. But the point, the problem that is brought out and addressed, being addressed in the book is any church you go into, the women always outnumber the men. It's just, that's just the way that it is. I mean, it, it doesn't, I mean, you pick any church you want to in this town or any other town, you walk into it, and there's a 99.9% chance that the women will outnumber the men. And there's a lot of churches where the, where the women outnumber the men by a lot. I mean a lot. Now, I look around here this morning, and we've got quite a few men here this morning, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, but, but, you know, there's a lot of churches you go into. I had a pastor friend of mine call me this week, um, and he was essentially complaining. I don't know that he thought about it that way, but that's what he was doing. He, uh, he, he's not pastoring anywhere right now, and he's just filling in at churches that need a pastor. And he was talking about this church he, passed, he, pa- he preached at last week, and he was complaining that there was not a single man there. It was all women. He was actually complaining that, you know, about some other things about having to do with the church, but that was the thing that come out, and that's so. I mean, that's a real problem. That's a real phenomenon. And uh, I haven't finished the book yet. Okay, why do men not like going to church? So I don't know what the author's conclusion is yet, but I've got my own thoughts so far. Okay, because I was one of those men. Right, twenty-seven before I got saved. Minister was married for eight years, I guess it was, and, and she would go to church, and I'd stay at home. I'll tell you exactly why it is that, that men um, stay at home, and there's more women that go to church than men. Because we're dumber than they are. That's, I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, it really is. You know, I think back at it, and I was looking at the times whenever I stayed home, and she, I was stupid. That's all there was to it. I, was just, I had all kinds of excuses and reasons and things I'd want to do, and I'll guarantee you what I was doing was stupid. You know, it was just, and, and you get to thinking about it, and you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and what was happening back there. I, I guess I've got the mindset I've been thinking about it. Adam was dumb. He was, had to have been dumber than, think about this for just a second. He is standing there behind his wife, not saying a word, while she is conversing with the devil. How do you think that's going to turn out? You know what I'm saying? That's not going to turn out very good. And it it, it, it didn't. It cost him everything. It cost him his home. It cost him his job. It cost him everything. It ruined his life for the rest of his life. Uh, We have sin as a consequence of that whole interchange. But uh, now I'm halfway joking in all this, but yet I'm serious too. And, you know, I, I, like I said, I don't know what, you know, fix or conclusion this author is going to come to or what, they're, you know, what they think it's going to take to change things or whatever. But, you know, this is a problem that has always has been. You know, it, it, it just, you, go through, you go back through time and at almost any point in time, you'll see the same 
problem in the in the church. And I guess, you know, if I'm going to be real and honest with you for a minute, I, I don't know, you know, I really don't know the answer, but I can tell you what mine was. I just liked my sin. I just liked my sin. I liked what I'd done the way I'd done it, and I didn't, I didn't want to give it up. I didn't want to give it up. When I, when I went to church, God convicted me, and he dealt with my heart, and I didn't like that. I liked my sin. John chapter 8, verse 1 says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, why, excuse me, verse 4, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And they said, tempting him, that they might have uh, to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. And when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, where are thou where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let us pray. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you one more time thanking you for the good day and for the many blessings. Thanking you for the opportunity you've given us to gather here and to worship you, uh, to fellowship together, to lift our voices up together, uh, giving you the praise and glory that you alone are due. And Lord, I thank you this morning. Not only for the ability and the health that you've given us to be here this morning together. The roof you put over our head. We thank you, Lord, for the nation that we live in. The freedom that we have, that we take for granted. That we have to be able to come here this morning freely without fear of persecution. But we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. For the reason that we have. For the hope that we have. To gather here this morning. Lord, we, don't, we didn't deserve it. We can't do enough to earn it, to repay you. We can't even thank you enough. But Lord, you knew that beforehand and you got it anyway. So Lord, let us always be a people with praise and glory on our lips because you alone are worthy of it. And Lord, I just pray as we go forward here this morning in this service, Lord, that you just have your way and your will in the, in the midst here. Lord, you know us. You know our hearts. You know our minds. There's nothing that's hidden from you. There's no surprises here to you this morning. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would just have your way and your will in our midst. 
God, that you would move in our that you would move here in our service and do what only you can do. God, that you would just convict us of where we fall short. Lord, my prayer this morning is none of us <coughs> would leave here this morning lost, but everyone, Lord, would leave here knowing that they're that they're one of yours, that they're saved and on their way to heaven. Their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, Lord, I'm just praying, asking, Lord, uh, help us to get out of the way and let you be God of this service here this morning. Have your way and your will in our midst here this morning. Lord, move by your, your, your Holy Spirit in a mighty way. Let your presence be felt and be known here. Lord, there will be no mistaking that everyone leave here this morning knowing that, you, that they've been in your presence, knowing that they've heard from you this morning. And so, Lord, that brings me to the last thing that I, what I ask you is I need your help this morning. I can't do this without you. I can't preach. I got nothing to say unless you give it to me. So, Lord, I'm just asking that you'd clear my mind of everything but your message, your thoughts, your words. You give me the clarity of mind I need to preach your message and to do it in a way that pleases you and brings you glory. I pray, Lord, that you'd put the very words on my, on my tongue, Lord, so that they would, uh, uh, Lord, so that I would say what you would have me to say. Lord, that everyone would know that it's come from you through my spirit to your to theirs. And so, Lord, I'm just praying, Lord, asking for your anointing, asking for a filling of your spirit, asking for you to have your way and your will in our midst here this morning. And we'll be sure and give you every bit of the glory for it. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. God, do it in your power and with your authority. And we give you the glory because we love you. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. You know, um, the sin of adultery, which is what's happened or been happening or took place here or brought out here, it's certainly not a new one. <laughs> um, often refer to, you know, prostitution as the uh, oldest profession in the world. Uh, I don't know that that's meant literally, but I mean it's it's meant you know to make a point that that adultery, infidelity, um, being promiscuous, uh, you know, that's not anything new. Uh, here in John chapter eight, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Um, the truth is, and we're going to bring that out here in a minute, is they weren't they weren't near as concerned about the adultery as they let on like they were um, what their effort was was they wanted to trap Jesus right they wanted to trap him with his own words right so they bring to him a woman who had been caught the Bible says in the very act of adultery right you'll see as we go through here there's no question about whether or not she is guilty she's caught in the very act of it uh, I'll talk about it a little bit later it's interesting that She's the only one they brought, right? It takes two to tango, but there's no, there's no him that is involved here. And, and, and so, anyways, we'll get to that here in a minute. Now, what we're going to focus on, though, at least at this moment, is these self-righteous religious leaders, right? Uh, they, they didn't care about this woman. They had no real concern uh, for what would happen to her. Right? I mean, if she was stoned, let go, whatever the case may be, right? Um, mutilated in some way, they didn't care. To them, she was only a pawn, 
right? She was only a weapon that they could use against Jesus, right? That's all it boiled down to. Little did they know, however, that by bringing this um, uh, sin-wrecked and shame-ridden woman to Christ, that they were actually doing her a favor. They, they had no idea what the end result of this was going to be. It wasn't going to turn out the way that they wanted it to, <coughs> the way that they, they thought it was going to. You know, when I think about her and her situation for just a minute, I think about um, those whose lives carry the shameful marks of sin, right? That they're only going to find mercy and grace at the feet of Jesus. Um when I think about that, and I think about even though these guys brought her to Christ and it's all wrong in what they're doing, I think about what the result is of, of each one of us when we're brought to Christ. When we look at this instance, right? And so, he, so here's the scene, right? Christ is teaching. The Pharisees and scribes, they don't like what he's teaching. Uh, they're becoming, they have become very jealous uh, they are looking for a way to, uh, I mean, they're, they're looking for a way to get rid of him, right? This chapter starts out with them wanting to stone this woman. It ends with them wanting to stone Jesus, right? So, I mean, that you see the direction that things are heading. You see what is, um, uh, what is happening here. And so, anyways, a, as we look at this, they bring him or they bring her to him. They, they don't bring the other person, right? I told you there's two involved in the adultery. They just bring her. They don't care about the adultery. They don't care about her. They don't actually care about the law of Moses or what is right and what is wrong. All that they care about is trying to get rid of Jesus. And so they bring her to him. And there is this scene that takes place that has got to be extremely awkward. Could you imagine being there? And all of a sudden they throw this woman into the midst, and I, you know, and probably, I, I mean, the shame and the guilt is going to be very obvious. And they asked Jesus this question trying to get him to trip him up about what they should do with her that the law of Moses says to stone her to death. What do you say? And he doesn't say anything. Silence. Silence. I think we're familiar with the silence of Christ when this woman is brought into his presence. There's been a lot of speculation Right? Uh, about um, what Christ wrote in the ground. Because that's the one thing it tells us is that he is there with his finger writing something in the ground, in the dust. And, and through the whole thing, right? He's, he's writing. He finally uh, responds to them, you know, telling them that whoever's without sin, they can cast the first stone. And he goes back to writing 
in the dust and the ground. Scripture doesn't tell us what it is that he is writing there in the dust on that day, right? What it is that he wrote in the ground, and there's no way to know for sure what it is that he wrote. But have you ever thought about it before? Have you ever thought about it and saw it this way that here, right here in this instance, in the dust is the very same finger that wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone some 1,500 years ago on Mount Sinai, right? The, the very ones they reference back to when they say the law of Moses. You see, because it is, when Jesus is writing there in the dust, it is the finger of God that is writing there that day in the ground. And not only did Jesus stoop over and write in the ground twice, but when I think about all that, God came down at Mount Sinai twice. The Ten Commandments are written twice. The Bible says with the very finger of God. So back to our question, what was it that Jesus was writing in the ground? Well, we don't know, but... Maybe he wrote the same thing that he wrote on those tablets for Moses 1,500 years earlier on Mount Sinai. Maybe, maybe that's not what he wrote. Maybe he started writing down a list of each one of their sins, right? Because this is the one that nothing is hidden from. This is the one that knows even what's in the deepest recesses of your heart. It's possible, Right? I mean, because what is there that God does not know? He knew their sins on that day just the very same as he knows our sins today. Their sins weren't any more hidden from him 2,000 years ago than they are hidden, than our sins are hidden from him today. Or then again, maybe he's just doodling there in the ground. Right? Maybe he's just making lines that are pictures of whatever. I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, this whole exchange was enough that the scribes and Pharisees, they had seen enough. They seen enough because we see after this, they walk away, starting with the eldest to the youngest, one after another. So let's take just a minute, just like... Jennifer read in her scriptures this morning about Jesus being the friend of sinners. Let's take a moment today and let's look at Jesus, the friend of sinners, right? That's something that was, uh, if you paid attention to the scriptures she read, that's something that they used as an insult against him. But actually it is the truth. One of the things that Jesus is most criticized for by the religious folks and religious establishment of his day was that he welcomed sinners right that's why he was termed right uh, and it was derogatory the friend of sinners right it was hurled at him as an insult but it's actually a, a title that's treasured by millions who know him as their lord and as their savior so let's think about this and let's look at this for a minute I think the first thing that I want to point out to you in all of this exchange that we see here is we see the fairness 
of Jesus, right? Uh, now, understand a couple things about this fairness. First of all, the fairness did not, um, it didn't permit him to reject the charge. What I mean by that is he, could, he was the perfect example of what fairness is, right? We have our own idea sometimes of fairness, and honestly, just to be honest with you, it's probably a little messed up sometimes. Jesus is the perfect example of fairness, and because of that, he couldn't ignore it, right? I mean, this whole thing here, right? She's caught in the very act. Nobody is saying, she's not standing there screaming, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. She wasn't saying, I've been set up, I've been set up. You know, she, there's no question, there's no doubt in anybody's mind. She is guilty, and he does not ignore that or pretend like it didn't happen. So here she's brought before him in her sin, wearing her sin. Everybody knows, right? It's exposed. All of her shame and guilt is bare before everybody that day. So what do we see here? We see three different ways to deal with sin, right? We, 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 see, we see three different things here, three different ways uh, to deal with sin and the people who commit the sin. The first way to deal with the sin that, that comes out in these scriptures is we could stone them. Right? They can be put to death. They can be exiled. Right? Uh, they can be put out. Uh, put, you know, as it says in the Old Testament, put out of the camp. Right? They take to the edge of town, stone them to death. Is what they was wanting to do here. Right? So, so we can stone them like Moses did. Right? That's what they bring to Jesus, trying to trap him with. We can another way they deal with sin and the people who sin is we can expose them and embarrass them. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees do here on this day. Or we can forgive them as Jesus did. That's your three choices. That's the three choices, the, the three things that we see here. Now, don't get the idea that Jesus condoned or coddled or winked at their sin. Because he didn't. But I want you to see, first of all, that Jesus was fair. He was fair to the men who brought the woman there that day. He was fair to the woman that they had brought there that day. And he was fair to himself as well as God of the universe. As, the, as I mentioned a while ago, the author, the very finger that had written the commandments that they used to bring the charge against her. He did not deny the charge against the woman. He didn't you know, bring out or expose some sort of plot or anything like that. So his fairness didn't, didn't allow him to just reject the charge if he had just ignored it or rejected it or you know, just somehow overlooked it like that, then he wouldn't have been fair at all. His fairness also did not permit him to limit the charge either, right? The accusers of the woman wanted it to be limited to the one woman, right? Where was the man that was involved, right? Didn't I say a while ago it takes two to tango? Where was he? He wasn't there. They weren't concerned about the actual sin, the law that had been broken. The accusers wanted to limit it. Want Jesus to limit his fairness 
just to this one woman, just to this one sin. And Jesus wasn't going to have any of it. He wasn't going to have it that way. He looked at the men and he said, He that is without sin among you, let him cast. Let him first cast a stone at her. In other words, let him throw the first rock. Christ was absolutely fair. And he wanted each person present to recognize the fact of their own sin. And Jesus knew, Jesus knew that there wasn't a one of them that would dare lay the claim to, uh, to being without sin, to being sinless. So, first of all, we see the fairness of Jesus. I want you to see also in this exchange the kindness of Jesus, right? How kind he was, right? I mean, because after the accusers walked away, right? And it says they walked away one by one, beginning with the eldest. Verse 10 tells us that Jesus looked up and he saw no one but the woman standing there publicly, openly, in her shame. You know what? Before Christ can get anywhere with us, he's always got to get people out of the way. Do you think about that? Before he could deal with her and her issue and her problem and her sin and her guilt, before he could deal with any of that, he had to get everybody else out of the way first. It's the same way with how he deals with people still yet today. In the matter of our sins, there's nothing that the church needs so much as for you and for me to get man's evaluation of our sins out of our minds. Jesus would not deal with her before the men. He's not going to deal with us on our terms and our, the way that we think about it and the way that we see it. So the accusers leave and just the two are left. It's just Jesus and her. It's now just a sinner and Savior face to face. That's where it's got to get to, right, before Jesus deals with us with our sin. Everything else has got to get everything else cleared out of the way where it's just sinner and Savior face to face. Jesus was not like those who accused her. He had compassion. He had uh, kindness that he showed her, even though she was guilty, right? She was condemned, but Jesus still yet spoke kindly to her, treated her with dignity and with compassion. So there is the scene. But now I've said all this to get to this. I want you to see the forgiveness, right? Because that's what happens here, right? The, the law, right? The law of Moses, which they're bringing up, right? The Ten Commandments, right? And all the rest of the law that Moses gave, that's given for a reason. It's to reveal sin. It's to expose sin, right? It defines what is right and wrong. It defines what is sin. But it cannot offer grace and forgiveness. 
We all fall short of it, right? It sets a standard. We measure ourselves up against the standard. And every single one of us, without exception, falls short of it, right? They brought a woman before him that day that fell short of the standard, far short. And they said, Jesus, let's punish her, right? Don't you think we ought to punish her according to what the law says? And Jesus says, oh yeah, and whoever among you that has not fallen short of that standard yourself, you go ahead, you start, you be first. And they wasn't, all these, these self-righteous hypocrites, bunch of bumbling fools, that's what they were, not a single one of them, right, even in all their self-righteousness, could dare make that claim. They knew. They knew. They all sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Just like you and I. Did you realize that it is God's delight to show grace to undeserving sinners? Right? You, you understand what grace is. Mercy and grace, right? Let me just define that and make that clear in this example. Right? A, a simple definition of mercy is not getting what you deserve. Right? Look at this woman. She deserved to be punished for her adultery. She's guilty. Even though we see a lot of things happen here that wasn't right, that still doesn't take away the guilt of her, uh, of her sin. Right? She's guilty. Mercy is not getting what she deserves, which is punished for her sin. And grace, it's God's delight to show us that do not deserve grace, grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. She didn't deserve forgiveness. She didn't deserve a new life. She didn't deserve a new chance. But God give it to her anyways. That's grace. It's the same thing for us. Who here, who here this morning deserves heaven? Who here is worthy of God's forgiveness? Who here deserves and was worthy of the sacrifice uh, that God made of his only begotten son so that you could be reconciled to him and go to heaven one day? Who here among us deserves that? Who here was worthy of that? None of us. Not a single one. And God knew that. Right? Uh, This isn't a... uh, I forget what they call that. Whenever you you, you buy something blindly and and you don't know what it is until you you get it, until after you bought it. Right? It it wasn't that way with, with God, with us. Right? He didn't blindly go into this... Not knowing what we were, he knew exactly what we were. He knew that we were in open rebellion against him. He knew that we hated him. Just like I started out talking about why is it that men don't like coming to church? Uh, You know, you see less men than women because they're dumber than women. That's why it's stupid. And he knew how stupid we were. He knew. That's why we're compared to sheep so often, I think, is because they're dumb too. We're dumb just like it. Always getting ourselves in trouble. Always getting ourselves in a mess. Always doing what we know that we shouldn't do. God knew. We didn't deserve it. And yet he done it anyways. 
Can I, can I, I need to point out something um, that we've really got mixed up in our culture today. Forgiveness is not the same thing as tolerance. Those are two different things. Jesus, we don't see tolerance of adultery here. Jesus is not tolerating sin. He's not putting up with sin. He's forgiving her and her, uh, her sin. Being forgiven does not mean that the sin does not matter. Right? It, it doesn't matter. If you take from this, well, what Jesus is teaching here is to break God's law and to sin is really not a big deal and it doesn't matter. You're missing it. You don't understand what forgiveness is. Forgiveness, being forgiven, does not mean that the sin doesn't matter. On the contrary, it actually means just the opposite. It means that the sin, uh, the, the sin does matter. But that God is choosing to set that aside. He is choosing to, to forgive. And when I think about this and this forgiveness and who needs forgiveness and, and you know, this whole incident, right? And he said, whoever's without sin cast the first stone. The only sinless person there that day who legitimately could have thrown that first stone at her is the one that showed her mercy instead. How unexpected it must have been when he said, neither do I condemn thee. Because, see, when all them other guys realized, I don't meet the standard either, I deserve to be stoned just as much as she deserves to be stoned. And they walk away, one to the oldest. I mean, you know, one after another, oldest to the youngest. I don't know why it was the oldest to the youngest. We can speculate on a lot of things. I'm going to go back to my stupid theory for a minute. It seems like as you get older, you get a little bit, men get a little bit less stupid, right? Maybe the oldest is the one that realized first that, you know what? When it got down to Christ, he's the only one left. He's the only one who's actually sinless. He's the only one that actually had the right to stone her. He's the only one that actually had the right to pass judgment. He's the only one that actually had the right. But he says, neither do I condemn you. You know, God's forgiveness is so different than man's. Right? Jesus chose to forgive her that day and it's so different than what our forgiveness is when man forgives oh we'll forgive people we'll say we forgive them but you know what then we don't want nothing to do with them after that I've said this so often and uh, it's the truth usually at our very best what we'll, what we'll say and what we'll do Right, we'll, we'll use some worldly wisdom like, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me again, you know, fool me twice, shame, shame on me. And what we'll do is, if we're going to be really big, we're really Christian, we're really, you know, self-righteous is what it really is. We'll say, you know what, you done me wrong, but I forgive you, Randy. But, I'm no fool I'm going to keep an eye on you. That's what we do. 
That's why when, when we feel really generous and we actually do make some effort to forgive somebody, right? That's how we do it. And we think that we're smart. We think that we're wise when we do that. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't forgive that away? Can you imagine if God was to say, you know what, Justin, I'm going to forgive you, but boy, I know what kind of guy you are, and I'm going to keep an eye on you. Oh, matter of fact, the Bible teaches us when God forgives, He forgets to be remembered no more. If God forgave sin like we do, He'd not have anything. There wouldn't be nobody going to heaven. Do you realize that? This woman had been thrown before Jesus as a guilty, condemned adulteress. And she walks away that day from Jesus, forgiven and free from her sin. You ever thought about that? Let me, I got one last thing here and I'll quit. I can't miss the end of what it says here in verse 11. I want you to see the holiness of Jesus so as you don't get the wrong idea here. The last thing in this passage of scripture that Jesus says is go and sin no more. Jesus, now I don't think that Jesus could have said, neither do I condemn thee, were it not for the fact that she had already repented, right? If Christ forgave her sins, we can be sure that she had been repentant, that she had repented. Even though it doesn't specifically talk about, right? We have no dialogue from her. We have no insight into what her heart is, but we can assume from what the scriptures teach us and from everything that we know about the Lord, right, that he wouldn't have forgiven her if she hadn't have been repentant and had a repentant heart. I mean, if Christ forgave her sins, we can be sure that she was repentant. Jesus does not condone uh, what, she had, what she has done, but he says instead, go and sin no more. The forgiveness that she receives is to be followed by a new life. Go and sin no more. Not go back into the bed of your lover that you've committed adultery with, not go back to your old life in your old way doing the same things that you used to do. No, it's go and sin no more, right? It is go and it's, it's the go and sin no more, right? Her forgiveness is followed by a new life, right? She has a new Lord and a new life, right? God grants her forgiveness as a free gift, right? And so that's what he does today. God grants forgiveness as a free gift to all who will put their trust in Jesus. And what Jesus did when he died on Calvary's cross, right? Because when he died on Calvary's cross, he died for her sins, he died for my sins, he died for your sins. And here's the thing. His grace, which is free, it becomes the motive to live a life of holiness, which is just the opposite of the self-righteous 
Pharisees and scribes and religious people of Jesus' day that has brought this woman and tossed her before him that was jealous and by the time you get to the end of this chapter is looking for an opportunity to stone Jesus themselves and put him to death. Always think what's so amazing about God's grace and there's many things but one of the things is how it motivates you to live a holy life. You see, because grace does what rules can never do. As long as you try to live by rules, you're always going to fall short. You're always going to fail, right? You're always going to fall on your face. You're always going to come short. But grace motivates us, right? When you realize and begin to understand what it is that God has done for you, what it is that has been given for you, right? That you're no longer under bondage uh, to sin, right? But you've been free from it. And you've got a new Lord and you've got a new life. Uh, and the grace of God is what something that you didn't deserve is what you, is what you got. That motivates you uh, deep down in your heart in a whole new way. Grace does what rules could never do, what laws could never do. And just so no one thinks that Adultery doesn't matter. Jesus never plays it down. He never says, and he doesn't say here it's no big deal, or I'm going to let this one slide, or well, it wasn't really your fault. No, 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 no. He forgives her sins and then sends her forth, sends her out to live a new life even though she is guilty, caught in the very act. And by God's grace, she leaves with a clean slate and a new life. Let me close. Jennifer comes for the song of invitation. Let me close by just pointing out one or two things here to you this morning. First of all, whether, we, whether we've been caught in the very act of our sins or not, we are all sinners and we're all guilty. We all know that. The Bible also says that there is a time coming when every single last one of us must stand before God in judgment. She stood before God that day in judgment. Every single one of us is going to have to stand before God in judgment. So let me ask you a question. Are you ready? There's no question. There's no doubt. Your day is coming. Your day is coming. And it may be sooner than what you realize. The only question is, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to stand before him? Listen to me. The offer for mercy and grace is extended to us now. That time, that day is coming to an end and coming to a close. If you're going to be prepared to stand before God on that day of judgment, you're going to have to accept that offer that God is extending to you right now. You're going to have to accept it before it's too late before you draw that last breath, before that last trumpet blows. So let me ask you, are you ready? Are you ready? Would you stand to your feet?
I want to open the altar and I want to give you an opportunity to come this morning. Spirit of God dealing with you, would you come this morning? If you've got a need, if you've got a heavy burden, would you come this morning? Whatever it is, don't you miss this chance. Don't you miss this opportunity. You might not get another one. Would you come this morning? Would you come?